thank you so much for tuning in to the Defending Christianity podcast. I'm your host, Levi Dade, and in this podcast, we aim to talk about the evidence and reasons for why the Christian faith is true and why it is good. We do this with the hope to encourage the church to engage the culture around us and to be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have in Christ Jesus as 1 Peter 3.15 commands. Thank you so much for listening. God bless. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Defending Christianity podcast. This is the first episode in the second season where we have a special honored guests um, to talk to you, the audience, so that you can be assured that what you hear is worth listening to. We want to talk about evidence and reasons for the Christian faith with the hope to encourage the church to engage the culture around them and be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have in Christ Jesus as 1 Peter 3.15 commands. Our topic today will be dealing with four of the most common objections to Christianity. And the first one is the objection to biblical accuracy, that the Bible is not completely accurate. And of course, this is the conclusion that most people jump to when arguing that the Bible cannot be trusted. The second argument is going to be dealing with the character of God, that a loving God would never send someone to hell. And the first thing that we want to address about that is that they neglect one side of who God is while giving aspect to the other that he's loving. But we'll, talk, but we'll get in that in a few minutes. The third argument um, is that people are basically good, which I assume implies that people can get to heaven by their own efforts, and thus no need for a savior. And the fourth argument we're going to touch on is, someone that's, is one that stops many Christians in their tracks. Christians are all hypocrites. And we'll be discussing this in this episode and these arguments were taken from the book titled the 10 most common objections to Christianity written by Dr. Alex McFarland who will be joining us today to discuss these four objections. Dr. McFarland is a Christian apologist, author, evangelist, religion and cultural analysis and advocate for biblical truth. That's a lot of titles. Dr. McFarland was the third president of Southern Evangelical Seminary and College located in Charlotte, North Carolina. Prior to that, Dr. McFarland had served as Focus on the Family's first director of teen apologetics, and he served as the director of apologetics and Christian worldview at North Greenville University. You can hear Dr. McFarland on American Family Association's radio network, American Family Radio, or AFR, Every, every weekday from 3 to 4 p.m. Central. This, this is on his show, Exploring the Word, where he co-hosts with Bert Harper. I strongly encourage you to tune in and listen to it as they literally open the Word and explore it, explaining certain passages, and I believe they are still going through the book of Acts currently. So tune in to Exploring the Word, which you can also hear on the AFR app. Uh, so, so please uh, don't miss out on that. Download it, and you can also hear past editions as well. So without further ado, let's get into our conversation with Dr. McFarland um, and about his book and these four objections about Christianity. Dr. McFarland, thank you so much for being with us. How are you? I'm doing great, Levi, and thank you for having me on. It's, it's really an honor. And hey, just let me applaud you. Uh, man, I'm so thrilled that you're doing apologetics. You are very knowledgeable about worldview and the issues competing against Christianity. And uh, I, I'm just so impressed with you. So I, I feel very privileged to cultivate the friendship and to be on with you today. 
Well, I'm very privileged to have you on and to meet you as well and to hopefully build a relationship and friendship that will last um, past today. Yeah. Um, so thank you for those encouraging words so much. Um, can, can you, just to get the audience kind of familiar with you, can you tell us a little bit about how you ended up in the field of apologetics? Oh, well, thanks very much. Um, you know, I grew up in North Carolina, and the Bible Belt, you know, was exposed to church from a very young age. In fact, when I was about 13, I was in a Sunday school class, and we uh, joined the church, quote unquote. And uh, uh, the man that taught our Sunday school, he said, you know, you boys are at the age, you need to join the church. And if you do, you can take communion. And uh, anyway, I, you know, Levi, I was a good kid. I always believed in right and wrong, and I always believed in God, really. You know, growing up on a farm, I remember I was a little kid once lying in the yard on a summer day, just the grass was tickling the back of my neck, and I, I don't know, I was maybe six years old, and I was looking up at the clouds and the sun, and I was just thinking, um, God made those, and I, I distinctly remember looking up and I, and I just thought, well, there's the world and my house and the trees and the clouds and somebody must have made it. And that was God. So I, I was very theistic in the sense that I believed in God, but I was also a mischievous little kid and I lied to my parents and I uh, spoiled my supper by sneaking into the cookie jar in the kitchen and I sometimes cheated in school. And even though I definitely believed in God and I definitely had a moral conscience, um, I did as much as a little kid could get away with. You know what I mean? I, oh, yeah, I, most definitely. I, I knew the right, but I frequently did the wrong. Hmm. And um, that really would weigh heavily on my mind. And, and I want to say this because some of your viewers might be asking, you know, why should I believe God exists? You know, there are a number of names I could name, some of which people would know and some of which they wouldn't know. I think about a number of PhDs that I know that have become born again Christians. In fact, uh, a man who's spoken for us in our conferences as his PhD from Harvard. He was an atheist up until his 40s. He was a member of the American Communist Party, but he became a believer based on this undeniable reality of morals, that everybody has this moral conscience. And if, if there's a moral law, there must have been a moral lawgiver. Uh, at any rate, that was a part of my journey. Um, by my late teens, I was playing in a band and uh, getting into clubs underage, lying about my age, playing in a band. Um, and even though in college, to my parents, even to uh, get my car inspected, I had this ratty old Mustang that wouldn't pass inspection. So I <laughs> paid the, the garage, you have to have an inspection sticker. So I gave, I gave this guy 20 bucks to put an inspection sticker on my car because my car couldn't pass inspection. I, I bribed the inspection garage. And yet I, I, I did the wrong, but I felt bad about it. Um, when I was in college, Levi, I got invited to a Monday night Bible study and I began to go to this Bible study and I began to hear about Jesus. 
and I begin to hear about the resurrection. And I begin to hear really for the first time in my life, this leader of the Bible study was explaining that it's not enough to acknowledge that God exists. James 2 verse 19, even the devil acknowledges that God exists. And uh, mm -hmm. of course, he's not saved. But if we read John 3, 16 and Acts 16, 31 and John 6, verse 40, we need more than a, a, a fact in our mind. We need a relationship in our heart. And I realized at age 21 that I needed Jesus Christ to be in my life. And I prayed and asked Christ to come into my life and forgive my sins. And I got into apologetics because within about three days of accepting Christ, I'm at the campus of UNC Greensboro, University of North Carolina at Greensboro. A lot of my friends were not believers. I had a, a friend from California who was a new believer and a pretty bold witness. So we're out on the campus talking about Jesus. And several guys that were like, well, I'm a philosophy major. I don't believe God exists. And anyway, I realized the next day that I, I had better get up to speed. And so I go to a Christian bookstore. I'd been saved only, you know, like three days, three, four days. I go to a Christian bookstore and I stumbled upon two books by a guy named Josh McDowell, Evidence mm -hmm. That Demands a Verdict, More yeah. Than a Carpenter. And, mm -hmm. um, I, I don't mean to go so long, but I got to tell you this. So I buy okay. these two books and uh, I had to go to school. I had to go to work. So it's like 730, 8 o'clock at night. I get home. Finally, I've got time to sit down with these books. And I had never heard the word apologetics. I didn't know anything about anything. I just knew I had a bunch of friends that needed to hear the gospel. And uh, probably about 3 a.m. in the morning, I finally put the books down and went to bed. I was hooked. And not only Josh McDowell, archaeology, history, evidence, but then I saw these names in the footnotes like C.S. Lewis and Norm Geisler and yeah. G.K. Chesterton. And uh, little did I know back at age 21 that the next 30 years of my life had been charted because I would uh, end up just not only to be a witness, but for my own personal enrichment, I would... Uh, give my life to apologetics to try to present and defend the, the message of Jesus. And Amen. Hey dude, I'm as excited today about the evidence for the gospel as I was 30 years ago. Uh, I am so enthused about the message of Jesus and the evidence that confirms it. And frankly, thrilled that you and I are talking about it right now. Amen. I agree. We definitely do have an evidential faith that, unlike any other world religion, is backed up through historical in inquiry. I think that's just an amazing um, attribute of our faith that God has just graciously provided us with. And I think it's up to Christians to take advantage of it and use it and not be afraid of it. Um, so I kind of want to shift to the topic today on your book, The Ten Most Common Objections to Christianity. About what year did you write that? I'm just curious. Oh, well, thanks. Yeah, that book first came out in 2007. So it's been about 14 years ago, you know. Um, but, yeah, we've, we've tweaked it and updated it uh, here and there along the way. But um, what, was, what, what was the ideal goal behind writing it? Obviously, addressing these objections and answering them is one thing. But what gave you the impulse to write it when you did? And why the 10 questions that you chose? 
Oh, thanks for asking. Well, you know, at the time I was working for James Dobson at Focus on the Family, and I was speaking at universities. And at that point, 2007, I don't know, maybe I had spoken at about 75 or 80 colleges. And now, you know, by God's grace, I've been to about 200 colleges. But I just kept a notebook of the questions I would hear. And uh, the publisher called me and said, hey, we want you to write a book. And um, I said, well, I've got like two or 300 questions that college kids have asked me and objections against the faith. And, and by the way, um, so what we did, we just numbered them and we counted. And these were the top 10 out of a couple okay. of hundred objections. These were the, the most numerous. Uh, like there were, there were some, for instance, you know, what about UFOs? What about Bigfoot? What about Area 51? I mean, once in a blue moon, I'll get that question, but that's pretty rare. But questions like, if God is good, why is there pain and suffering and evil in the world? Now, that's mm-hmm. a question I get like every day of the week. Um, you know, I've asked, um, what about multiverse? Could there be multiple universes and, you know, uh, sentient life in other galaxies? That's a rare question, but mm-hmm. how do we know the Bible is accurate and preserved? That's a question you get. So we just numbered them, and these were like the top 10 questions. Awesome. Also, also to our listeners, you can buy the book on Amazon if you want to go further in studying the, um, the four objections that we'll be addressing along with the six that we won't get to today. I'll leave the link in the uh, description of this episode so you can just go right there and order it if you want to do that. Um, so we have about between five and maybe 10 minutes for each one of these, probably not all of them, um, depending on when you have to go, because I know you have exploring the word here soon. So I just want to get into our first objection. The Bible is not completely accurate. You can take this in any direction you want, but I think that the a good place to start is with the ordinance argument. You know, there was a time in our culture where the Bible was never questioned. It had this Judeo-Christian net that surrounded our culture, especially in the Bible Belt South, and therefore the Bible was viewed with respect and a source to be taken seriously. With this major factor, um, what this did, um, it changed. What I'm sorry, let me let me back up. In your professional opinion, what do you think caused this to change and? And when did it start to change that eventually led to this Christian net being basically gone? Wow. Uh, great, great question. I'm going to give you three milestones. Um, German liberalism, Darwinian evolution, and moral relativism. And mm-hmm. I know this might sound crazy, but uh, it's taken two centuries for some ideas that came out of, of Europe and the 19th century to really pervasively impact our world as they have today. Around 1790, there was a German scholar named Friedrich Schleiermacher. Schleiermacher has sometimes been called the father of German liberalism, but he wrote a book called On Religion. And Schleiermacher is interesting. Um, his, his views kind of were all over the map, but I think it's, it's accurate to say he was pretty much of a pantheist meaning that everything is God. If there is a God, it's just everything is God, including you and me, we're God. And Schleiermacher, among other things, undermined the view that the Bible is the divine word of God. 
right? Now, there's two questions about the Bible. Is it trustworthy and is it of divine origin? Because, see, we could have it trustworthy and accurately preserved, but that wouldn't necessarily mean it was from God. I mean, you could have the works of Shakespeare accurately preserved. But that doesn't mean they're really of divine origin. So on the, on the case of the Bible, which I do believe, for the record, I believe the Bible is the word of God. Absolutely. I think it is mm -hmm. completely, flawlessly, inerrantly the word of God. And I think it's applicable and relevant for all people. Now, um, so we've got out of Germany comes what's called higher criticism that we, to understand the Bible, we don't look at the words for what they say. We, we assume it's due to culture. It was just Jewish nationalistic propaganda. And we, um, I would say we, the, the German higher critical view of the Bible is we, we derive some naturalistic explanation rather than accept it for being the word of God that it is. But then in the mid 19th century, came a juggernaut that has rocked the world to this very moment, and that's Charles Darwin and his book on the origin of species, the idea that we evolved out of the primordial soup. Now follow this progression, because your question, how do we lose the Judeo-Christian safety net that we, you know, stood, or the foundation rather? Okay, Schleiermacher says God is not the creator. Uh, I mean, uh, God is not the communicator. The Bible is not the word of God. Darwin says God is not the creator. By the late 19th century, early 20th century, a lot of thinkers were connecting the dots. God is not the foundation of moral truth. So look, mm -hmm. if God didn't create us, if God has not revealed his word to us, if God is not the foundation of moral truth, then you've knocked the three legs from out from under the stool. And by the late 1920s, we're seeing the word postmodernism crop up. That's kind of a, to many people, a recent word, but that word's really been around a hundred years. So even though, and, and I know this, we're talking about hundreds of years, but in terms of world history, that's not that long. 1517, you had the Protestant Reformation, Luther, and uh, salvation is by faith, not works. Yay. All right, then you had the pilgrims come to America, the building of the colonies. The colonies were overwhelmingly Christian. Then you had the birth of America, 1776, the Constitution, 1787. By the 19th century, you had great revivals. You had the first and second great awakening with uh, Jonathan Edwards, then D.L. Moody and Charles Finney. And Christianity just permeated all that was America. But I'll tell you a couple of things that happened. All right. The depression in the, the 1930s did not steal America's faith. Even though things were hard, people were poor and hungry. You had World War I and World War II. And Christianity in America was stronger than ever. And during the Great Depression of the 30s and the crash of Wall Street in uh, 1929, people didn't become atheist. In fact, they turned to God all the more fervently. What's interesting is America's falling away from the gospel happened not in the poverty-stricken dust bowl of the depression, 
but in the prosperous, hyper decadent world of the 50s and 60s, post-war America. It's interesting. We abandoned God, not in a hard time, but in a time of great prosperity. Uh, after mm -hmm. World War II was rock and roll, uh, convertibles, I mean, huge prosperity, and uh, the rise of youth culture. But here's what happened. I'll say this, and I'll throw it back to you. By the 60s, the 1970s, and I mean, I was in school in the late 70s, early 80s. All right. In the classroom, I remember, Levi, in the classroom, we had evolution hammered into us. I will never forget my high school biology teacher. His name was Steve Helms. And uh, he was, oh, man, Darwin, Darwin, evolution. And he just so sarcastically would mock the Bible. Well, he was wanting to point to the blackboard one day, and he, th there was a flag in the classroom. So he pulls the flag off the wall, rips the flag off, throws it in the trash, and uses the, the wooden dowel as his pointer. And so I grew up, and I can only imagine what it's like now, but I remember my professors in college and even my teachers in high school they mocked God in the Bible. They, in science class, all but worshipped Charles Darwin. And then by the time I, even 30 years ago, when I was in my undergrad program, I had professors that were pro-gay, pro-transgender. And so it's just been, it's been decades in the making, but we've had the classroom, the media, and even many pulpits that are less about the word of God and more about the ideas of man. And suddenly we're a country that's all but forgotten God. Mm. And so no longer we can point to the Bible and say it, it will, it's true because it's in the Bible. We now have to say it's in the Bible because it's true. And that's taking on a whole different kind of conversation that, that in a different way of going about talking about it than we had before where we could just say the Bible is true because you're not going to listen to a source that you don't even believe is accurate, you know? And yeah. so we can't use that anymore yeah. to convince at least. Um, not in a skeptical context, as Daryl Bach points out. Um, so so that's interesting. So if we can't do it that way, um, I'm, I'm curious on your thoughts about this. Some people don't really want the Bible to be true because of the obvious implications of that on their lives. Do you think that the majority of people who don't believe that the Bible is accurate don't want it to be true or because you think that they're actually seeking truth and that's what they intellectually believe? Yeah, I think a lot of people don't want it to be true. There's a, um, a philosopher whose name is Noggle, um, and there's a quote I use in some of my presentations. He says... Um, <laughs> Noggle, and you might have heard this quote, I learned this quote from Gary Habermas, but Noggle says, um, it's not that I think atheism is true and I hope I'm right, he says, but he said, I'm bothered by the fact that some of the most devout believers I know are highly intelligent, highly educated people who believe in God and even Christianity. And uh, Noggle goes on, he says, 
uh, I don't believe it. And he said, I don't want the world to be that way. I don't want there to be a God. Well, hey, mm. I don't want there to be tooth decay from eating candy and drinking soda. But, you know, reality is what it is. You know, I don't want there to be cops who give me a speeding ticket when I go faster than the, the sign says. But, you know, the fact is the world, reality does not bend to our wants. If we are wise, we ameliorate our lives in light of reality. And the question yeah. is, uh, why do you believe the Bible is true? Well, let me say this. I believe the Bible is true for a lot of reasons. One of which, though, is the testimony of Jesus, the only man that ever rose from the dead. Now, Jesus, who rose from the dead, something nobody else could ever do. I mean, that's good authority. That's a, that's a pretty impressive point on one's resume. Uh, the ability to do miracles, the ability to conquer the grave, the ability to time travel, pass through buildings, uh, to show oneself to be God incarnate. That's a resume. That's a pedigree that none of us can trump. And Jesus, the only man that ever demonstrated deity, said in John 10, 35, the scripture cannot be broken. Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away. My words will never pass away. So the short answer, why do I believe the Bible is trustworthy and accurate is because Jesus said so and he was raised from the dead. But the, the somewhat longer answer is things like this. The Bible has amazing unity, amazing indestructibility, amazing scientific accuracy, historical accuracy, prophetic accuracy, amazing worldwide influence, amazing life-changing power, and amazing unparalleled circulation. Uh, I mean, when you look at archaeological, I mean, to a T, uh, with every turn of the archaeologist's spade, another page of scripture has been confirmed. So looking backward, we've got the, the corroboration of archaeology. Uh, looking forward, we've got fulfilled prophecy. The Bible is simply a book like no other, and it has a message like no other. I mean, religious works throughout history have basically said, do this, don't do that. Be good. Maybe your good will outweigh your bad. Christianity alone has this message that is utterly unique. I've shared this, Levi, with many an atheist, how Christianity says, look, uh, the bad news is we're sinners, but the good news is God loves us. And Christ paid for our sins on the cross. Put your faith in Jesus and you can be forgiven. All right. But here's something utterly, absolutely unique. The imputed righteousness of Christ. This concept and no other faith system that I've found. And I did a, I did a thesis on world religions. There are some 30,000 religions in the world. I've never come across another belief system with a comparable explanation of reality. Christianity says it is a legal universe and God is righteous. And if you want to go to heaven, not hell, you have to be righteous, but you can't buy it. You can't earn it. You don't have it. And there's no human way you can get it. Ah, so what do we do? Well, if you will put your faith in Jesus the righteousness of God that you and I don't have and we can't somehow earn. 
this is amazing, Romans 4. And, and by the way, in doing this, God gives us salvation and he doesn't compromise his holy nature and he doesn't transgress his own word. And yet his mercy and grace is manifested. God says, if you'll put your faith in my son and what he did, then the righteousness of Jesus will be accredited to you, attributed mm -hmm. to you, imputed. And I want to say this idea of imputed righteousness, that in the eyes of God, the believer is declared righteous and you can die with no fear. 1 John 5.13, John 6.37, Romans 4, Romans 5.1. You can know that you're ready to meet God because the holiness of Jesus himself is accredited to you. That concept in the pantheon of world religions is utterly unique. That too tells me, okay, this message was not by man. Um, you know, Chesterton said this, it, and this is worth repeating. G.K. Chesterton, 100 years ago plus, in his book, Orthodoxy, he's, he says, all of the world's religions are boringly similar. Uh, boring. <laughs> Work, cross your fingers, maybe 51%. You're 49% guilty, 51% innocent. All of the world's belief systems basically boil down to the concept of works. Chesterton said, only Christianity has a risen savior. It's very cool. He says, nobody else has any good news for the simple reason nobody else has any news. All of the world's religions are boringly similar. Christianity says, put your faith in the risen son of God and you're going to be okay. And that message is unique. I love that. That's an amazing presentation of the gospel and, and why it's unique and, and why it should... Um, provoke people to to at least consider it instead of dismiss it so easy you know i have a, a world religions professor at my university dr barbara pemberton and she says um something that's kind of a catchphrase all around campus she says that um, christianity is different from every other world religion in that every other world religion gives you what you deserve while christianity gives you what you don't deserve and I think um, that is a really great way of explaining it. Thank you so much for joining us today on Defending Christianity Podcast. I hope and pray that you were encouraged and strengthened in your faith. And if you're someone who's seeking truth, I hope and pray that you have gotten closer to that. Because Jesus is the truth. Join us next time on the Defending Christianity Podcast. God bless.